Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles there, James chapter five this morning, we continue studying God's word in this series entitled One Another. Throughout this season, we have been specifically looking at God's word and God's instructions about how we minister to one another in the body of Christ. There are some maybe who would ask the question, why are these one another's so important? And why are we taking so much time on them? But I think it's important for us to remember today that all of the one another's that we study in scripture, they are not suggestions. They are instructions from God. God has given a clear word of instruction and command about how we love one another and minister to one another in the body of Christ. Not only is it important because they are instructions of God, but secondly, they're important because how we care for one another, how we serve one another, how we love one another reveals something to us about our heart and our relationship with God. If you have a hard time loving your brother or sister in Christ whom you see, there's a strong indicator there that something is not right between you and God. If you have a hard time serving your brother or your sister, those that you like and maybe those that may cause you some challenges along the way, it reveals something to us about our heart and our own relationship with God. But a third reason why it's so important is simply because of this. How we minister to one another, how we care for one another in the body of Christ is declaring a powerful message to the world around us. Many people are getting their understanding about God and about the truth of the gospel by our actions. I remember years ago, a seminary professor and one of my bosses quoting this poem to me. He would say this, you're writing the gospel a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, distorted or true. So what is the gospel according to you? When the world sees our actions, when the world hears our conversation at the Walmart checkout line, when the world sees how we behave in the parking lot, when the world sees our social media posts and status, here's the question. Do they see anything different in us than they do the rest of the world around us? Do they see Christ? Do they see our love for one another? Do they see our care for one another? Or do they see the same things that they see in the world around us? Yes, we are called to love one another. But I'm reminded this morning in God's word, the basis of all of that comes from Jesus himself. Jesus was one day asked, master, teacher, tell us what is the great commandment? Jesus looked loud and clear and he said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Jesus shows us loud and clear in that statement of declaration that it doesn't matter how many friends you have in this world. It doesn't matter how many followers you have on social media. It doesn't matter who you know in the context of the world. If you don't love God supremely, you've missed the most important part. If you don't have a relationship with God where you know him and by faith you follow him and you love him, you're missing the most important part. But if you have that relationship with God, Jesus says, but the second commandment is likened to it and that is, to love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's important for us in the context of the body of Christ to study and more importantly, to understand and apply what it means to love one another well. I wanna ask you today, 
Are you loving one another well in the body of Christ? And specifically, as we look in James chapter five, I want us to see how we do that in the way that we pray for one another. If you're physically able, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? We're gonna begin in verse 13 through 20. Now, before we read, let me make a, a kind of a disclaimer about this pastor scripture. Most of the time when we open God's word on Sunday mornings, I will preach in an expository manner. And by that, we will look at a pastor scripture, verse to verse to verse to verse, sometimes phrase by phrase, and we'll look at it in its entire context. The context of James chapter five is God speaking through James about someone in the church who is sick. I believe the context is saying they are sick because of unrepentant sin in their life and God has allowed the sin to get their attention and draw them back to him. That's the context of James chapter five. But if you look at this from the 10,000 foot view, so to speak, if you look at this from a topical perspective, as God calls us to pray for one another, God lists five different people or five different groups of people that we are called to pray for. James chapter five, look with me at verse 13. Simply says this, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and, key's phrase, pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. He prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. So my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this incredible opportunity that you've given us to pray. May we never take for granted or think lightly of the simple fact that you, the living, almighty, all-powerful God of heaven, invites us to your throne to pray. It's amazing. God, I pray that we'd not lose sight of that, and today you would show us how we can do that more effectively and more intentionally in our lives. Pray for one another. You know, this morning, I'm convinced there is absolutely no more vital topic to the follower of Jesus than the topic of prayer. The fact of the matter is, when you think about our gathering together as a body of believers, there are probably many things that you think of. Perhaps you think of the reading of God's word or the preaching of God's word. Maybe when we gather together, you think about the music and the way that we worship the Lord. Maybe you think about giving and the way that you give of the Lord your tithes and offerings. Maybe you think of the way that we fellowship with together and we hang out in the gathering area in the parking lot now during this COVID season. I wonder how many of us think though about prayer. Did you know of all the different things we just talked about, the preaching of God's word, the worship of God in song, uh, the gathering together and fellowship of the believers, there is no topic mentioned more in the New Testament than the topic of prayer. God has much to say about it. It's important for us. In fact, the importance of prayer is best seen in the fact that Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach, but he continually taught them how to pray, both by direct instruction and by personal example. Prayer for a believer is so important. 
Many times in the context of ministry here over the last four and a half years, I've preached about prayer. 2019, we preached a six to eight week sermon series as we talked about how to pray and when to pray and why to pray and what that should look like in our lives. But today in God's word, I believe God is showing us in James chapter five in a very simple way, five different people that we should be praying for in the body of Christ. Now, before we get there, I think it's important to say a few things. First, it's important to remember that for the believer, Prayer is not merely a religious exercise. I remember when I was a child, my mom would ask me at night, now, Matthew, have you said your prayers? And of course, what she was describing was a a habit, a practice that I would get into where I would pray. But as I became a, a teenager and then an adult, of course, it's not just about going through an exercise. It's about a relationship with God. Many times in prayer, it needs to be reminded of us that prayer is not just about vain repetition. If you're in a place of praying where you start your prayer the same exact way and you find yourself praying for the same things without even mindlessly considering it, you need to pause and consider what are you really saying and are you really giving your heart and mind and thought into what you're saying to God? But I think another thing that's important about prayer is that it's not just what we do during the bad times. It's easy for us when life gets hard and circumstances come, it's easy in those moments to realize our need for prayer. I remember being a child, it seemed like every time my father said, son, you're in trouble, go to my room and wait for me. I want you to think about what you've done, how quickly I began to pray and seek the throne of God and ask for help and mercy. We go through circumstances, that's how it is. I remind an illustration I've told you before about little Johnny, he was so excited. His parents announced, we're going to visit grandma and grandpa. So he was so excited and they pulled up, they got to the house, they walked into the house and just like normal, grandma had fixed a whole spread of food. All of his favorites were there and he didn't wait a single bit. He jumped down on that table, sat in his chair. He started grabbing food and man, he began to dig in. His mother looked over him and said, what has gotten into you? Have you forgotten your manners? We got to pray for the food first. And he said, oh, mama, we don't have to pray for this food. She said, what do you mean? He said, mama, we don't have to pray for grandmama's food. It's already good. So often we think, well, when it's bad, when it's not what we want, when things, when we're in those moments, that's when we need to pray. But what God is showing us is this. Prayer is not about religious exercise. It's not about just going through the motions. It's not just about, just about, oh, when life's hard, then you pray. No, prayer is about a relationship with God. Above all things, prayer is a conversation with God in which we draw close to him and confess our need for him. In other words, as a follower of Jesus, I don't pray because I have to. I pray by God's grace because I get to. I pray because the living, almighty, all-powerful God of heaven, he's invited me to come and he's made a way for me to come and he delights when I come and confess my need for him. What an amazing thought today to know that you may not get an appointment with the mayor, the governor could care less, and you probably won't get to talk with the president. But at the moment you bow your head and bow your heart before God and call out to him, you have an open audience. He stands ready to hear the cries and the needs of his children. The Bible tells us there's much that we should be praying for. But in the body of Christ in James chapter five, I want us to look topically at this passage and notice five people or five groups to be praying for. And as we begin, I just want to simply ask you to ask yourself in examination this question. Am I faithfully praying for others in the body of Christ? Am I faithfully praying for others in the body of Christ? And if the answer is no, I want to challenge you today to examine your heart and consider why not and what is standing in the way of being obedient to the Lord. Five people to pray for. Number one, I would encourage you this morning to pray for those who are suffering. Pray for those who are suffering. 
The scripture starts in verse 13 with this question. Is anyone among you suffering? Then what should he do? He must pray. Clearly, if someone's suffering, they should pray. But please, I want to understand us to, to be reminded today, in the body of Christ, we all have a calling to be praying for one another, to be bearing one another's burdens. The word that James used in this moment for suffering literally means affliction and hardship. It's a very general word that was used by many translations to simply say trouble. If anyone is in trouble, then let him pray. Who should we be praying for in the body of Christ? We should be praying for those who are in trouble, those who are facing hardship, those who are facing affliction of all sorts of circumstances and trials. The clear implication is the one who in trouble, who's in trouble should pray, but the context of this praying for one another is that we too should pray for all who are in trouble. I'm reminded this morning, and I think we all need to be reminded, that Christians are not exempt from trouble. There are some who will say, well, if you just believe in Jesus, you will have your best life now. You believe in Jesus, everything will be a bed of roses. You believe in Jesus, everything will be easy. But I'm here to tell you this morning, we live in a broken, fallen, flawed world. Ever since the fall of man in Genesis chapter three, ever since man hardened their heart and went their own direction, we've experienced all sorts of disease, death, and disaster everywhere we turn. We live in a fallen world. The Bible tells us literally that it rains on the just and the unjust alike. The righteous and the unrighteous alike all experience hardship in this world. Suffering at times may be a means of God correcting us. Other times it may be a means of God perfecting us and making us more like Jesus. But either way, we experience it in our life. It's interesting to note that this same word that's used here for anyone among you suffering is also used by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Listen to what he said to young Timothy. He said, Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Please understand that Paul did not deny, nor did he dismiss the reality of hardships and sufferings. No, he understood them. In fact, he looked at them and, and other passages of scripture, he would map it out of how at times he was beaten, at times he was sick, at times he was stoned and left for dead, at times he had been shipwrecked. He'd gone through all these different things, but here's what he said. He said, listen, I face suffering and I face hardship and I face these afflictions, but here's what I do. I look to God and I trust him and I trust in him for strength. I trust in him for grace and I press on to do what God's called me to do. Here in this world, we are not promised an easy life. This world, if you're a follower of Jesus, is not our home. Yes, we face afflictions, but we can face them and we can press forward in trusting in God. I would encourage you, if you know people in the body of Christ that are suffering, be faithful to pray for one another. In fact, that is the entire context of James chapter five. In the previous verses, verses seven through 11, James is speaking specifically about those who are suffering and he's talking about what it requires in those seasons. Listen to the words that are on the screen, verse seven. Therefore, be patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. There's no way you're gonna have patience without praying and people praying for you. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts. That's not gonna happen unless you're praying and others are praying for you for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren. 
That's not gonna happen if you're not praying and people are praying for you against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Patience, endurance, strengthened hearts. That's why we must pray for one another in the body of Christ who are suffering. John Phillips said it this way, prayer is the great resource of all those who are undergoing trials and the ready resource of solace and strength for all of God's people in all ages and under all conditions. That doesn't mean that God will remove the affliction, but it does mean when he doesn't remove the affliction, he will give the grace and the strength and the help that is needed for you to persevere. That's why the apostle Paul could pray three times for God to remove the thorn in the flesh. God didn't do it, but here's what he did. He said, Paul, I want you to know something. In your weakness, I'll be strong. In your difficulty, I will work. In your affliction, I'll give you the strength and I will move mightily through you. Even Jesus himself prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. But of course, it was the Father's will for him to go to Calvary and give his life on the cross. God the Father gave him the strength and the help to endure as he ultimately went and gave his life for us. I want you to know we can pray for those who are suffering and as we do, we can be confident that God will provide what is needed in their life. Secondly, not only we pray for those who are suffering, but we pray for those who are sick. If you're still with me, would you say, all right? We pray for those who are sick. Now, this might sound like it's the same thing, but actually it's a very unique thing that happens in verses 14 and verse 15 in James' statement. James does something that is so unique and it's very simple, and yet it is absolutely profound what God leads James to write in verses 14 and 15. Simply put, he says in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. The word for sick here is a very simple word that all of us can understand. It's literally a word that means to be weak, to be feeble or diseased. It's speaking of a physical ailment, a physical infirmity. What he's saying is, is that if you're physically sick, call for the elders of the church to pray. But then in verse 15, he says something interesting. He says that the prayer that's offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The second word for sick here is a different word in the Greek. It's a word that literally means to be weary and to be heavy in mind. What James is envisioning here is an individual who's physically sick and that physical sickness has also affected them mentally, if you will. Think of that for just a moment. How often it is in our day, especially we understand this, when someone who is physically ill, it begins to affect them mentally. Someone who's physically ill, they've received the diagnosis of a, of a disease. They begin to go through the process of getting treatment. They, they go through that process. Maybe they, they begin to recover after time and then they get a, another bad report. I was told just before this service today, I have a sister in Christ. She, she's gone through procedure after procedure, surgery after surgery. She's in a, in a place of health and literally last night she, she got hurt again. It's amazing how our physical health begins to affect us mentally. And at the same time, the flip side of that is true. There are times in our mental health because of trauma and because of situations of depression and of loneliness and despair, that mental health begins to affect us physically as well. Either way, God is looking and saying, listen, in the body of Christ, listen, there are those who are sick physically. 
disease and various things that they're struggling with. There are those that are sick mentally in the sense that they're overwhelmed, they're discouraged, they're isolated, they're lonely, they're depressed. They feel like throwing in the towel and giving in. What does God say to do? Pray. Pray. Now, now I want to emphasize that this implies something of us. This implies that in the body of Christ, we're not on the sidelines, but that we are engaged in the body of Christ, loving one another, doing life with one another, so that we are aware of the sickness. We're aware of the sufferings. We're aware of the hardship. We're aware of the struggles. So often we are hesitant to share the needs because maybe we're embarrassed. So often we are hesitant to share the needs because frankly, we just don't know people too well because we are not engaged. One of the devastations of this season of pandemic and quarantine is that people have gotten isolated and separated. It's led for many to a place of loneliness and despair and it's caused a major issue both mentally and physically. Counselors in our area can testify to what I'm saying right this moment. But in the body of Christ, we are not without help. In the body of Christ, we're not without hope. In the body of Christ, we're not throwing up our hands. Oh God, what do we do? Here's what we do. We call upon God in prayer. You may think there's nothing you can do, but I'm telling you, you can pray and you can go to the God who has all power and the God who has all authority and you can ask God to heal and you can ask God to move and you can ask God to save. Oh, there might be a lot of things you can do after you can pray, but please understand there's not many things you should do until you first take time to pray. That does not mean that God is going to heal every situation, but I think we need to be reminded this morning that God can still heal. Many of us are content to be like the disciples in John chapter nine as they approached the man that was born blind. They passed him on the side of the street and they they were more content to judge the man than they were to help the man. John nine, they asked Jesus this question, Rabbi, who was it that sinned? Was it this man or his parents? Why is he born born blind? Who, Who did wrong? And Jesus made it loud and clear it wasn't about this man's sin or his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus took time for the man. He showed compassion on the man. He had mercy on the man. He stopped what he was doing and Jesus healed the man. May God help us not to be so caught up we're trying to figure out what's wrong with everybody, but instead showing kindness and mercy and compassion going out of our way to provide help and to provide support and to pray for others. God can still heal, amen? This past week, I met with a group of businessmen on Tuesday morning with a group that's just beginning to, to meet for the purpose of studying God's word and praying together. Very simple. It's the first time they'd ever met and I was invited to be there and I was honored to be. And so I went early on Tuesday morning, way much earlier than I am comfortable with, but nonetheless, I was there. I had to make sure God was still awake, but he was, and so we were good. So uh, I was there and as we were talking, we were talking, we got to talking specifically about the power of God and how he works through prayer. One of the gentlemen spoke up and he shared a testimony. He shared a testimony with tears in his eyes about what God had done in the life of his niece. And he shared the testimony that at five years old, his little precious niece began to have problems with her eyesight. So she went to the eye doctor and the eye doctor immediately noticed something was wrong, but sent her to another specialist. She went to a period of about three or four different doctors. And when all was said and done, they determined that she had multiple cancerous tumors in both of her eyes. At five years old, her Christian parents were forced with the choice, either remove her eyes so that she lives or do nothing and the cancer will eventually take her life. How do you you make that decision as a parent? 
And, and they began to pray and they called the pastor and the elders of the church and they prayed. And, and, and one day specifically, her, her dad was having a, a, a time in God's word and he just felt really convicted about something in a unique and special way. And so they determined that they were not going to remove her eyes but they were gonna keep praying and trusting God. After that, they met a, another doctor in the area and the doctor said, listen, we, we can't cure her. We can't do this, but there are some other things we can do with her diet, with her vitamins and special treatments that we think will potentially help her in some way, at least give her longer strength in her eyes. And so let's try this. And so they agreed to do so. That little girl was five years old. A year later, not only did the cancer not spread, but they began to notice the tumors began to shrink. Within three years, the tumors were so shrunken that they barely registered at all on any kind of scan. By year five, there was nothing there. Year 10, there was nothing there. And the reason he told the story is because he had just got off the phone with her the day before and she was saying, please pray for me. If COVID all works out in the spring, I'll pitch my first fast pitch softball game in college as a sophomore. So Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying that the God we know and love and serve, he still heals. So when someone is sick, don't throw in the towel. When someone is sick, don't give up on them. Take them to the Lord God in prayer. I would not be here today if it weren't for the fact that God still heals. When I was a baby, I was diagnosed. One night, my mom went to my crib. I literally was unresponsive. They rushed me to Baptist Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. They didn't know what to do with me. They transferred me to, Nash to, to, to Vanderbilt Hospital and the doctors looked at me. They did scans. They called my mom and dad together and said, we have no idea what we're dealing with. There's some sort of blood issue. We've had three other children just like him in the past 48 hours and they were dead within 24 hours. Call your friends, call whoever you want to be here when he dies, get them here now. They called them all not to come and weep, but to pray and to approach the throne of God. And seven days later, they took me home and there's nothing wrong with me. At least Heather may not know that, but nonetheless, like, <laughs> I'm kidding. God can heal. So when someone is sick, don't throw their name on a prayer list like nothing can happen. Take it to God in prayer and recognize that the living God of heaven who gives life, who gives breath, who has a final word, he can move and heal in an instant. Pray for those who are sick. Third, pray for all the saints. Pray for all the saints. You won't see that word saints in this pastor's scripture, but here's what you'll find. You'll find that phrase that we've been studying for the last seven weeks, one another, and confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Who's the one another? It's the body of Christ. It's brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I call them saints? Well, unfortunately, many times because of the teaching of the Catholic church, Many people think that the saints are the select few that are put in this prized position, if you will. In fact, many of them are, are prayed to or modeled in such a way that we think they're perfect. But here's the reality. According to God's word, every single person who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are adopted into the family of God and are a saint in Christ. The word saint literally means holy ones. It means set apart. I'm not set apart by my doing. I'm set apart by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the very moment I called upon Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins and save my soul, he forgave me and he cleansed me and he set me apart. I went from death to life, from darkness to light, and now I'm a child of the Lord Jesus Christ, a child of God in Christ. What a wonderful truth that is. What God is wanting us to see this morning is this. You, you might, man, I, I don't know if God could ever forgive me. I don't know if God could cleanse me. You don't, Pastor, you don't know what I did this past Friday night. You don't know where I've been. You don't know who I've been with. I don't. Every sin you'd ever commit, 
Jesus' outstretched arms on the cross are a permanent reminder to us that he loves us and he invites all of us to come to him. And when we come by faith, he forgives, he cleanses, and literally he sets us apart as his saints. The Bible says this way in Ephesians chapter two, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you are of God's household. Pray for one another, he says here in this passage of scripture. Pray for one another, verse 16. Pray for one another, pray for the saints. It's amazing that we see this model through the early church in Acts chapter one, as they gather in the upper room, what do they do? They pray. Acts chapter two, verse 42, what are they devoted to? They're devoted to four specific things, but one of those is they're devoted to prayer. And this prayer continued literally all throughout the city from house to house, place to place, group to group. They're praying for one another. We see this prayer for one another modeled by Jesus himself. John 17, as he's praying the, the great high priestly prayer, go read it this week, John chapter 17, in one chapter and in one prayer, 42 times, 42 times in one prayer, Jesus specifically references the disciples, his followers. That's how important it is to pray for one another. If Jesus would see the importance of praying for one another, surely we would in the body of Christ today. The Apostle Paul, we see it clearly in his example all throughout Colossians. We see it in Philippians. We see it in Thessalonians. We see it in Galatians. What's he doing? He's saying, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Always praying for you. Here's the question for us in the body of Christ. Can we say the same? Are we always praying for one another? Are we always thinking about the needs of others around us? Are we so engaged in their life that we know when they're struggling and hurting? when they're sick? Are we praying for one another like God has called us to? I'm reminded in the scripture, Ephesians chapter six, verse 18, right after God gives us this incredible armor of God image in Ephesians six, God says it this way, with all prayer and petition, guess what? We are to pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. What is he saying? Keep praying for all the saints. Well, what do you pray for? Two specific things I would encourage you. Pray for spiritual maturity. Look, look around you for just a moment. I don't know who such and such is, but when the service ends, go introduce yourself and begin praying for them. Write down their name in the leaf of your Bible. Write their name, their name on the worship guide and begin praying for them, praying that they will grow in the Lord, praying that God will accomplish in their lives what he desires to do. Here's what Paul said in Colossians chapter one, verses nine and 10. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Listen to this, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He's just describing spiritual maturity here. Pray for one another that you'll be growing in the knowledge of God. Pray for one another that you'll be growing in the fruit of the spirit. Pray for one another that you'll be growing in the likeness of Christ. Secondly, pray for one another. Colossians chapter four, verse 12. Pray for each other to stand firm in the Lord. Many things that are tempting us today, aren't there? Many attacks that are coming against the church, many attacks that are coming against people who profess faith in Christ. We need to be praying, according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, that we will stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Pray for all the saints. Fourth thing I want you to see this morning that we should pray for. If you're still with me, would you say, all right? Fourth thing we should pray for is this. We should pray for the servants of the Lord. 
This is a topical message, I know, but I want you to see something in this passage of Scripture. Twice, two different groups of people God mentions through James. He mentions the elders. These are the elders of the local church. Most likely in James' context, the church of Jerusalem. And then there's this prophet of God in the Old Testament by the name of Elijah. I want to encourage us here at Crossing to be faithful in praying for the servants of the Lord. Now, to be clear, all of us are called to serve the Lord. Amen? Every single one of us. Every child of God is called to serve. But when I say the servants of the Lord, what I'm largely meaning is the shepherds, the pastors, the servants in that context, in the context of ministry, they are focused their life, they're, they're giving their life for the glory of God and for the good of his church by serving him. God lists here this man by the name of Elijah and tells us something interesting. It says of Elijah that he was a man of a nature like ours, or some translations say of passions like ours. You know what the Bible's telling us? It's telling us that Elijah, as great of a prophet as he was, he was still a man. I said to you a few weeks ago as I was preaching about Elijah, actually a few months ago now, that the best of men are but men at their best. Elijah was a dynamic man of God. We can look at Elijah and we can say, oh man, look at how God provided for him at this brook. We can look at Elijah and we can say, look at how, how the widow's son died and, God, and he prayed and God intervened and raised the son back to life. We can look at Elijah in 1 Kings 18 and we can say, man, he prayed for fire to fall from heaven and God sent fire and it consumed the offering and the water. And it's amazing. There are plenty of mountaintop experiences in Elijah's life. But Elijah also experienced what I would guarantee every minister of the gospel also experiences. And that is just like that, he went from the mountaintop to the valley. I wanna encourage you, Crossland Community Church, to be faithful and praying for your pastors, your pastor's council, your deacons, be faithfully praying for your community group leaders, be praying for our missionaries, for our evangelists, be praying. Because I am telling you this morning that, 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 that literally there is a bullseye, there is a big mark, a big target that is put on their back that Satan will do anything and everything he can to distract them and to divide them ultimately because his purpose is to destroy them and to rob the Lord of the glory that he deserves. There are many pastors today serving the Lord in a very strange and challenging season who are greatly discouraged. Elijah knew what it was like to be on that mountaintop experience where he is serving God, he's seeing God work and move, and he went just, I mean, just like that in 1 Kings 19. He goes to such a valley of depression and despair that he literally is ready to throw in the towel and he says, God, take my life, I can't take it anymore. There are many servants of the Lord today that are serving, frankly, with weary arms and weary hands in the work that God's called them to. Exodus 17, verses 10 through 13. The Israelites are looking at a battle against the Amalekites. They were greatly outnumbered. And frankly, there was little to no way they were gonna win the battle. It seemed impossible and most advisors would say, Turn back, don't go forward. But the problem is God was saying, go forward. Moses seeks God's counsel. He then looks at Joshua in Exodus chapter 17. And he tells Joshua, Joshua, select men for the battle. I want you to go forward in the battle. When you meet the enemy there in the valley, I'm gonna go to the mountaintop. And when I go to the mountaintop, I'm gonna take the staff of God with me. Exodus 17 verses 10 through 13 tells us what happened. It says that Joshua did as Moses told him and he fought against Amalek. Moses, along with two supporters, two assistants, Aaron and Hur, 
went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held up his hand, the Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Underline this statement if you got it in your Bible. Listen to this. But Moses' hands were heavy. It's getting weary. It's getting tired. So these two men, Aaron and Hur, these supporters, they took a stone, they put it under him, and they sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands on one side and on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sunset. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. God gives us that for many reasons, but I believe it's a powerful picture for the reality that godly servants still need godly supporters around them. They need people who are gonna undergird them and stand with them and support them and strengthen them and pray with them and pray for them for the work to continue, for the victory to be won and for God's will to prevail over all. I wanna share a story with you that was in a book by Tom Rainer a few years ago now that I think depicts the need to pray for our pastors in a very powerful way. This is a true story. The only thing that's changed are the names in the story so that you couldn't and I, and I couldn't guess who he's talking about. And this is not every day in the life of a pastor, but it gives to some extent a depiction of why we need to pray so much for our pastors. Here's what he says, and I'm simply reading from the story. It says, it's Thursday morning. Pastor Doug has a clear calendar, which is an aberration in his busy schedule. Actually, the calendar is not really clear. He set aside time to finish his sermon for Sunday. So his Bible's open, study aids are nearby, and he begins to study. And then the phone rings. His assistant tells him about a car accident involving a family in the church. The ambulances are already on the way to the hospital. Doug leaves all of his study material on his desk. He jumps into the car. On the way to the hospital, his assistant calls him again. The entire Godsey family of five was in the car. None were seriously injured except Gary, the father and husband of the family. His condition is worsening by the moment. Moments later, Pastor Doug walks into the emergency waiting room. The family's just been told that their husband and father did not make it. They see their pastor and run to him sobbing in total shock. Doug is there for them. He stays with the entire family for a few hours until he is certain that enough people are around to care for them. He then stops by his home to see his wife and grab a quick sandwich for lunch. It's now afternoon. He's not sure if he can return to his sermon preparation, but he knows that he must. So he must fight the emotional exhaustion of the morning and strive to finish the message. But as he gets back to the church, his assistant apologetically tells him that two people need to speak with him. They both consider it urgent. Doug meets with the two men. One of them is the worship leader of the church. He's struggling with his ministry and is considering giving up. For two hours, Doug listens, consoles, and attempts to encourage the staff member. He then leaves the office. The next visitor catches Doug off guard. George is one of the key lay leaders in the church. He considers him a friend and an incredibly vital person in the overall leadership of the congregation. George struggles to speak, but finally puts the words together. My wife is having an affair. There are no words spoken for the next 10 to 15 minutes, just tears and sobs. Doug stays with George for the next few hours. They pray together and talk about next steps moving forward. It's nearly five o'clock in the afternoon. Doug is too, too drained to attempt to get back to his sermon. Instead, he begins to look at his crowded email inbox. Oh, bad thing to do, buddy. He cringes when he sees one of the senders of an email, but he cannot stop himself from opening the message. It's from one of Doug's most frequent critics in the church. She's got two complaints. The first is an irritation of something that he said in last Sunday's sermon. That would never happen here. Especially the political illustration last week. 
The second complaint addressed Doug's failure to visit her sister-in-law who had minor outpatient surgery yesterday. The sister-in-law is not a member of the church and Doug knew nothing about the surgery. It's now evening. Pastor Doug shuts the laptop cover and moves to his car slowly. He'll stop by the house to grab a quick bite to eat. He needs to check on the Godsey family. He'll stay with them briefly, but he must leave by 7.30 when he has to get the invocation for a local high school basketball game. Apparently it's pre-COVID. Several people get his attention at the game, so he doesn't get home until after nine o'clock. He goes to a small study in his home. He shuts the door and in exhaustion begins to cry. Why does he cry? Because Gary Godsey, the father and husband who was killed in the car accident, was Pastor Doug's best friend. This was the first chance that Doug had to grieve throughout the day. To be clear, that is not every day in the life of a pastor, but it is more days and moments than you realize. And so I wanna ask you as a church to commit to praying for your pastors and your leaders. Can I just say to you in the midst of what has been one of the most challenging seasons of life and ministry I've ever experienced and you've ever experienced, I am so thankful for the many of you that have sent a text message, left a message on the, on the phone, or our seniors group who have a 31-day prayer guide of how they're praying for their pastors. I cannot express to you the overwhelming gratitude and joy it brings me to know that I don't stand alone, but there are people who are standing, supporting, and holding up arms. There are many pastors in our country right now, and I didn't mean to spend so much time on this point, I really didn't, frankly, who are trying to stand strong, but their arms are growing weary. We're blessed today to have Brother Don Cox, a very dear friend of mine, who is an SBCV regional pastor, a regional missionary who ministers to pastors all over the state. And he can tell you what I'm telling you is true. They're weary. Church, may they not be weary because they don't have support by their brothers and sisters who are praying for them. Finally, as we pray, we must pray not only for the suffering, for the sick, for all saints to grow in the Lord, not only to pray for the shepherds, if you will, the servants of the Lord, but finally, we pray for all of those who are straying. And we'll wrap up our message here. Verse 19 and 20, notice what he says. So my brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That word stray literally means to wander and to err. What are we straying from? Here's what he said. He said, pray for those, consider those, remember those who are straying from the truth. What is the truth? The truth is the word of God. Please hear me loud and clear this morning. If God's word is not a priority in your life, it will only be a matter of time before God is no longer a priority in your life. If you, you look at God's word as the option at the buffet and the list of things to do, you look at God's word as a thing that you're participating in only on Sunday mornings, you look at God's word with a flippant attitude, I'm telling you, if it is not a priority in your life, it will only be a matter of time before God himself is no longer important in your life. Pray for those who are straying. Literally what God envisions here is the sheep who wanders from the fold. They began to stray. They began to be distant. What God is saying for us in the body of Christ is this. Don't throw up your hands in despair. What do you do? What do you do when someone you're in close fellowship with is now running from God? What do you do when a child of God 
runs and tries to distance. What do you do when one of your own children says, I no longer believe, I'm gonna do my own thing? Here's where you start. You start by praying for them and trusting that the God of heaven who can direct the heart of kings can also soften and direct the heart of that straying sheep. There's a lot of things you can do after you pray, but it's gotta start with prayer. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, Pastor, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. If that's you this morning, I wanna challenge you to ask yourself and examine, are you faithfully praying for others? And if the answer is no, then I wanna ask you to examine your heart and ask the Holy Spirit of God to reveal why not faithfully praying for others. But if you're here today and you think about that illustration of straying, maybe you'd be here today and you'd say, Pastor, man, I don't even know if God would hear my prayer. If I talked to God right now, he would probably look at me like, who are you? It's been so long since I was close to God. It's been so long that that I had a relationship with God in that way. Friend, I wanna encourage you this morning. God loves you. He's made a way for you to be forgiven. He's made a way for you to be right with him. And he is not willing that any of us would perish, but all would come to repentance. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 stands as a permanent promise for you, and that is this. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, if you've been straying, you feel distant in that relationship, or maybe never even had a relationship with God, you can today by calling upon Jesus to forgive you and cleanse you. Can we just bow our heads for a moment? I realize this message today is a little different than normal, but I believe God is speaking to hearts and lives. I wanna pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now. God, would you move in our hearts and lives according to your plan and may we respond by being obedient to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.